consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I have been tracking my water. Tell me more. I'm trying to drink a gallon a day. That's so much water. <laughs> it's getting inconvenient. Without getting graphic. <laughs> You're I'll be like, oh, that's a lot. Teaching an hour long lesson and I'll be like, okay, lesson's over, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel awesome. Oh, good. I feel like I've been dehydrated for like 10 years because <laughs> I just drink coffee all the time. Um, and I was like, maybe I need to like drink water, you know, and be a functional adult human. And oh my God. yes, I, I actually can tell the difference. I can too when I'm hydrated. Actually being dehydrated is terrible for my embouchure and my endurance. No, absolutely. And in general, I've been trying to be a lot better about taking care of my body. Uh, our friend, friend of the podcast, Laura Medisky, uh, is an Alexander Technique person. And uh, so she's very aware of the physicality of doing what we do. And she said to me a couple of weeks ago, she was like, Jackie, an athlete would never subject themselves physically to the type of, type of stuff that we do and do absolutely no maintenance. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is true. <laughs> That's what I decided I needed to drink more water. And I've also been booking one massage a month. Can I tell you, I was inspired by you telling me that. So I had a massage last week. That's amazing. It's, it's hard. Like it's expensive. So I'm keeping it to once a month because that's what I can afford. But Really, I, I do feel better, but oh my God, the first day, the day after I got it, like I got the massage, she was like, okay, what, how much pressure? And I was like, I don't know, like seven. And um, let me tell you, next time I'm going to say a four, <laughs> I was like, oh, I must be tense. This is quite a bit of pressure, but never like anything that made me like cry out or anything. Uh -huh. I woke up the following morning with five inch bruises up and down my back 
Did I send you the picture? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's not great. <laughs> Maybe that's something you build up to. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so other than drinking water and getting massages, what have you been up to? Um, I actually had a very amazing performance on Sunday, the 25th. Um, we had our memorial concert for Patty Malone, who, if you have been listening to the last few episodes, you'll remember us talking about how she passed in January. Um, she was my predecessor at USM and the family put together just a wonderful memorial concert for her. And it was so interesting because back in December, her daughter happened to ask her, you know, if you could put together a concert program of all your favorite music, what would it be? And so she knew, like, it was uh, Respighi Ancient Airs and Dances, the Bach Wedding Cantata, uh, the Bach Double, and uh, I think those were the three pieces that she mentioned that we were able to perform. So we actually found an arrangement of uh, Respighi Ancient Airs and Dances for quintet. So we played that. I got to play the Bach double with an incredible violinist in town. And uh, one of her former students, um, and actually Kim Woolley's sister, Mary Kay Woolley Young, played who who was a student of Patty Malone back in the day, um, played the wedding cantata. Um, and it was just incredible, like to have to know that that's what she would have wanted to play. And we were able to play that for her was really meaningful and cool and beautiful. And um, I tried not to listen to any of the speeches so that I could play. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I get too emotional, <laughs> but it was really fantastic. So that was that was a really great experience I had this past weekend. That is so special, and I'm so happy that you all got to do that. And her family was there, and everything. Her family was there. Yeah, her whole community was there, and uh, it was very cool. It was very cool. Special. It's like such a cool question to ask somebody, like what program would you put together of all your favorite music? Like what would be your number one ideal program? That's such a cool question. What if that's the next dish? I think we should do that. In memory of Patty Malone. And yeah, that's such a good idea. Okay, we'll do it. Okay, we'll do it. Well, we're going to have to uh, pre-record some dishes anyway, because I am, let me see, let me check my countdown real quick. I am 46 days from going to New Zealand. So yes, we will have to have some uh, episodes ready to be released, scheduled releases while I'm gone because it's not uh, entirely a vacation. Of course, I'll be, you know, doing lecture recitals and teaching and whatnot, but uh, I am not going to be editing podcast episodes while I am in New Zealand. <laughs> no so. way. No, thank but, yeah. you. <laughs> so remind the listeners what you're going to be doing in New Zealand. I am going to, so it's a, a grant that was funded um, to be an international uh, indigenous collaboration, building upon the work that I've already done with Native North American composers, I was basically like, what if I expanded this to an international lens to make it uh, 
more inclusive in the indigenous representation. And so the grant has funded the commissioning of three new works for bassoon by Mari composers. And I've gotten two of them and they're so exciting and I can't wait to play them uh, and record them, which is what I'll be doing in the fall. But when I'm actually in New Zealand, I will be meeting with these composers. One of my composers, Charles Royal, will be taking me to an iwi, which is a, um, I, I'm trying not to map all of these terms onto Native American and Yakima terms that are familiar mm -hmm. with me, but um, tribal community, uh, mm -hmm. basically, and he has a recording studio in his house, and so I'm going to play stuff, and it's going to be, he's composing the piece, but he's going to have me experimenting in real time to kind of see what he likes, and uh, cool. I'm going to give lecture recitals at the University of Victoria in Wellington, and they're also going to have me teach their woodwind class. And I'm also going to be playing and teaching at the University of Waikato in Hamilton. And very cool. Yes, there are several like Maori museums and other communities, restaurants, uh, galleries, and just basically um, immerse myself for the sake of solidarity and relationship building, not necessarily to come back and position myself as some Maori authority, um, but for it to be a collaboration. Mm -hmm. and so I'm excited. I've never been to New Zealand or Australia or taken a flight that long. I don't want to hear your horror stories. Do not email me your horror stories about 22 hour long flights, please. <laughs> Well, that's so exciting, and I you're going to come back so inspired and also probably sleepy. But I'll be on summer break, so that's right. that'll be all good. Okay, so there is another exciting development in Jackie land. <laughs> a small, you, small little thing. A small thing. If you uh, are a member of IDRS, or follow IDRS on social media, then you already know this, but a certain someone is our new VEEP. Yes, I am, as of right now, the Vice President of the International Marine Society. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the first thing I did was send you gifts of the show VEEP. Which I've never watched. Maybe I need to watch it. I think you need to watch it in preparation for, like, I know you already are the Veep, but I think you need to, like, watch Veep. I don't even know what it's about. Is it funny? It's funny. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the Vice President of the United States. Well, thankfully, this this should be less pressure than being the Vice President of the United States. <laughs> But I have to be honest, I am a little overwhelmed at the responsibility. I'm, of course, going to take it seriously. Of course, um, I'm going to try my hardest. I know the potential for me to be perfect is non-existent, which is hard for me. <laughs> I will do my best. But, you know, knowing that this is a job that requires you to see around every corner and is high stakes and that you have a responsibility to the field and the, to the people who pay annual memberships and are invested in this society. And so I'm going to do my absolute best. And uh, I, I'm just thankful for the opportunity. And I'm it's still gonna be amazing. It feels a little surreal still. And the duties haven't like full fledged 
gone into full effect. It's like 48 hours ago is everything when this all <laughs> So Yes, but you know, eventually I will get acclimated and hope to be able to do some good and contribute. So yes, thank you to everyone who's reached out with messages of support and excitement and love because I really, really appreciate them a lot. ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are so happy to welcome to Double Read Dish, Michael Croft, Professor of Bassoon and Associate Dean for Undergraduate Studies at Michigan State University. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's great to be here. Would you start by explaining to us how is it that you came to start playing the bassoon? Well, um, I think it was it was part of my father's uh, plan to entertain me during a snow day. Um, we had, I was home from school, um, and, um, he was, uh, at the house with me and trying to find ways to occupy me. So he pulled out a recording of, uh, Leonard Bernstein conducting New York Philharmonic and Sorcerer's Apprentice. And I heard the, the famous bassoon, uh, 2D section out of there and thought, wow, I, I really dig that sound and wanted to, wanted to play the instrument. Um, so it was kind of my first exposure to to the bassoon and then followed it up with all kinds of things later. And we had a terrific um, uh, music education program in New York State. Um, and I did I grew up in kind of Grand Island, New York for for most of my high school career, uh, middle school and high school career. And um, uh, I wanted to play uh, the bassoon and in fourth grade we could start. And so I was too small to to play the bassoon and actually it was when i you know when i finally did get one it was up to the bridge of my nose when i stood next to it but uh so i started on the oboe um and that was my first kind of uh 
a year of, of playing. And then when, when I was big enough to play the bassoon the next year, I was able to, to move onto the bassoon and have never looked back. Although I love the oboe. I, I enjoyed playing it. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, how how longingly were you staring at the bassoon while you played the oboe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really liked playing the oboe too. So can you talk us through kind of getting serious about the bassoon and deciding that it's something you wanted to pursue professionally? Did you know right away that this is how you wanted to make your career? No. Uh, at, at first, I wanted to be an architect, and then I wanted to be a pilot, and then I wanted to uh, be a biologist. And um, I was always playing in my high school band and wind symphony and and, and uh, greater buffalo youth orchestra um and was was having a lot of fun and then uh, in the summer uh, summer of my junior year uh of high school i i went to the saratoga school of orchestral studies and got a chance to work with the philadelphia orchestra in that four-week summer intensive out there and then i was hooked i thought wow this is this is what i want to do uh, and so I started taking private lessons uh, on the bassoon. I, I had in-school lessons, which was really nice. Uh, and I had, again, terrific music educators who knew how to teach me the bassoon. Um, but uh, I started studying privately in my senior year with, with Nelson Dayton, who was the principal bassoon of the Buffalo Philharmonic at that time, and then started off on my, my college auditions. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's kind of how I got the the itch to go professional with that. Mm -hmm. um, Can you talk us through your training and educational journey and how you got to Michigan State? Sure. Um, I um, like I said, I moved around a lot um, as a child. Uh, my father uh, was a minister, and we was in different churches, and so we we moved a lot of places. And then once we got to Grand Island, I spent a lot of time there. So great, terrific music education program there. Um, and I did the audition, uh, typical audition route um, with the with the big schools, and and um, I ended up at Ithaca College uh, studying with Ed Gobrecht. And one of the things that that I I think. I appreciate now more more than ever was um, he was kind of he was very honest with me when I went into the audition, uh, finished the audition and and I had been successful in other places. And he said, you know, I'm just not sure you've got what it takes. I'd love to try and teach you. And I was hooked. I thought, wow, wait a minute. Uh, other folks have said this is good, but here's he's wanting more from me. So that's what that's what prompted me to go there. And I. I loved my time uh, at Ithaca College and, and um, with with Ed Gobrecht. Um, he was a, a Schoenbach student, um, so I, I ended up kind of getting all of that Schoenbach wisdom secondhand. Um, and then I went and did my master's at Temple University with, with uh, Mr. Garfield, and that was a, just a terrific experience. Um, um, and so I uh, did two years in Philadelphia, and... Um, um, and then after that, I think I was very fortunate. I, I freelanced around uh, uh, Philadelphia and uh, did a few things over in New York City and, and in New Jersey. I was doing kind of the, the freelance scene through that area. And then I auditioned uh, for the United States Air Force Academy Band, which is uh, 
uh, now the Band of the Rockies, but it's a premier band uh, in the military and was successful and spent four years in Colorado. Um, and that was a really terrific experience. Uh, did march some cadets to, to uh, noon meal formations and did the big parades and, and the commencement ceremonies. So that was very fun. But the concert band and uh, the, the uh, Woodwind Quintet there were, were really terrific. Great, great performers, great colleagues. It was a great experience. Um, and then um, my, my first enlistment was about up and I, I wanted to get out and do some real orchestral playing. And so I auditioned and was, uh, I was able to win a position um, with South Dakota Symphony in the Dakota Wind Quintet. And so we moved out to South Dakota and I, I spent eight seasons there with some really terrific colleagues who were kind of all, we were all doing the same things, trying to get ourselves up and out and into the bigger jobs and, and were listening to each other play our audition rounds and, and um, we had worked with a wonderful man. Henry Charles Smith was the conductor of, of the South Dakota Symphony at that time. And um, he was so generous with his time and uh, used to listen to us do our auditions, gave us great opportunities to, to play terrific repertoire with the orchestra. And, uh, and then um, I was, you know, uh, just kind of out and about trying to win something on the audition circuit. And I got a call from one of my current colleagues here who said, uh, you know, we're going to have a, um, a bassoon position open here. Are you interested? And I, I had never considered going down that path. I, I had been teaching at University of, of Sioux Falls and, and University of South Dakota and Augustana College and knew that I really enjoyed uh, teaching. Um, so, uh, I started putting all of my stuff together. We could talk about that in a moment, I suppose, but putting all the things together that I needed to do and, and luckily was, was successful in the end. And I, I have never looked back. I think this is, this is a terrific job and, um, and it allows me to, to do all of the things that I really love. Um, and I love working with, with the students and, um, and now in my role as, as an associate dean, being of service to the students and my colleagues and trying to figure out what we're going to do in terms of educating the the next group of musicians and and leaders in the industry um, as part of my job so before we dive deeper into your path uh bernard garfield is such an icon in the history of bassoon playing and i would love to hear about um, your experiences studying with him and what he was like as a teacher and and tell us a bit about that experience i i can't i probably will sound overly enthusiastic and and effusive about my time with him it those were some of the most incredible years uh, uh, in my career uh, i I knew who he was uh, early on, and um, I would say I probably didn't take the typical graduate uh, audition path. I knew I wanted to study with him, and I auditioned at Temple University, and that's the only audition I took. And I, not, I would not that I would recommend that for other folks, but I knew that's where I wanted to go. And I think, you know, uh, putting all my eggs in that basket may have made made me work very hard to get there, but. Once I was there, um, he, he, um, his mind goes 
100 miles an hour all the time. And so you would be in conversation with him. He always had a solution to a problem. And and he had worked it out in, you know, because he was doing this on a regular basis. Um, so he had, you know, all kinds of, of wisdom when it came to the excerpts, when it came to the solo repertoire. Um, and I think because he had, you know, his background is actually, he's got a composition degree. He brought a little bit of something different to, to my understanding of the music. Um, and he would talk about what do you, what do you think the composer is trying to do here? Or why, why are you not, you know, he would ask these questions. Why are you not realizing what the composer is asking of you here? Um, he was, uh, he was a wonderful taskmaster. You ha my first lesson, I remember walking in the door and, and the, um, the last movement of the barber, uh, violin concerto was on the stand and I had not seen this piece and he said, why don't you play this down for me? And I, <laughs> oh my goodness, this is huge, you know, rapid technical work. And, and then, um, he said, uh, can you play me a three octave F major scale? And I, you know, coming out of my undergraduate degree, I thought, uh, wow, is this, is this an expectation that we play a three octave F major scale? <laughs> and, and it sure was. Um, and, uh, so, uh, right out of the gate, the, 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 the intensity of the lessons was, was evident. Um, and he maintained very high expectations, um, and was a patient man. I mean, you know, uh, he he was willing to go around and round and round about something until you got it. Um, uh, he also like when he would pick up his instrument in in the lesson, which was rare uh, because you know we we could go down we could go down the academy of music and hear him you know do do his thing. But um, if if he took his instrument out, um, you sat there in awe. I mean, he would just play something on a cold instrument and, and a dry reed and you, you know, wow. Uh, I remember one time he sat right next to me and uh, because, you know, in, we would go study in his, his basement. And so he would, he came and sat right next to me and played Hofner from beginning to end. And I just kind of sat there thinking, Oh, wow, this he's, it's absolutely perfect. Uh, he did that again for me. One of one of the moments that I really thought was was special in my lesson was he played uh, the Tchaikovsky for slow movement solo, and it was stunning. It was just beautiful, and and I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. And he stopped and he said, well, maybe before I'm gone, I'll play that right. <laughs> and I, <laughs> well, okay, uh, I, I sort of understand now. It's, it is you are a lifelong learner and and always trying to improve your craft. Um, I um, came to uh, Garfield reed making very easily. Uh, I I really that's the sound I wanted. That was the kind of flexibility I wanted in a reed. I you know he played uh, let me play a, a couple of reeds and I thought yeah this is this is the this is the ticket. So, um, you know, he was such a wealth of information. You just had to ask. And, and that was the key. You need to ask. Um, so I would say, well, okay, how do I solve for this? How do I solve for that? Or, or, you know, he would take your read and hold it up under the light and find all the things that you thought you had already taken care of. And, and he would find things in the silhouette and say, 
Well, look, this is right here. Plain to see why you're having this problem. Um, but then he would he would actually make the make the adjustment for you and and show teach you how to make that adjustment and and that was great. But but you know in terms of of preparation for the industry the the you know at, at that point I was going into the audition circuit. It was very clear that there were certain expectations that were undeniables. You had to play the technique. You had to play in time. You had to play in tune. And then you had to have a beautiful message. Um, and if, you know, if one of those things was not in place, it was likely that you were not going to be successful. Um, and so, so I think the way he incorporated all of those in every lesson was, was really beneficial. I use his teaching now. I mean, there, there are times where, where I'll say something and say, and say to my students, oh, that, I mean, that was just exactly what Garfield would have said to me. So, um, yeah, it was a wonderful time. And it, to me, it was a master's. So it was two years and it just felt so short. Like I could have, I could have gone on longer with him and he was great. I would, I would be able to go back and play for him at times. I would usually catch up with him over the holiday breaks and, and, and say, can I, can I come and play for you? Say, Absolutely. Come down and, and, uh, you know, once a student, always a student. You had mentioned getting into the materials of job search. And, um, we have a lot of listeners who are on their way. So they are still in school or just out of school and are looking to find their path. And as we know, it's extremely difficult to find that job um, that that is going to be, you know, the job for you. So I would love to hear your perspective on job seeking, um, especially in the higher ed context. Although if you wanted to get into um, other aspects, that would be great, too. Well, we can we can talk about the higher ed aspect of it. I mean, that's where I am now and and what I've most recently done. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that um, it's important to to start thinking about um, if you want to go into higher ed, let me let me start it that way. If you want to go into higher ed, it's going to be important to think about what you intend to do in that job in the future. Do you do you want to um, uh, have a, a creative and scholarly portfolio that is performance driven? Um, are you going to be out uh, building a career doing um, or, you know, in, in your job being part of a, uh, an orchestra or out on the solo recital trail or out doing uh, recordings and, and commissions? Or are you going to be a little bit more on the pedagogy side of things um, and and um, presenting articles, pu- publishing articles and, and doing uh, a little bit more of the the kind of uh, research that that is more library driven and experiential driven, um, and and so thinking about where you want to be um, in in your higher education job with with the knowledge that of course we're going to be teaching students and that you're going to be building a, a national reputation for yourself and that there are expectations uh, for you to be out and doing something creative. Um, that it's good to think about it before you are faced with that in an interview. So when the dean says to you on that interview day, so what areas of research do you have, or where, what are your interests in research? 
you have something to say. I'm, I'm interested in bassoon pedagogy and, and uh, or I'm interested in commissioning new works or, or health and, and well-being as bassoonist or, or double reed player. Those are, those are great things to have kind of at your disposal in the interview itself. I think, you know, as, as we talk about preparation for this, record record your recitals with with high quality recording equipment because when it's time to submit materials you may have done something really spectacular in one of those recitals that you can use later on so take taking seriously the recital component to your degree whether it's master's degree or 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 dma and archiving and really trying to to have a professional recital at each one of those moments now here in, in at msu there's a four recital requirement three of them are chamber recitals and uh, three of them are sorry three of them are performance you know solo recitals and one of them is a chamber recital um but but the expectation is that you're going to record these for archival purposes anyway so put together your best version and really try and deliver on that recital so you have material when the when that job off the 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 um, notice goes out you're not scrambling trying to put together brand new materials and find a recording studio that can do this for you or an accompanist and and reinventing what you had already done make great recordings so those are kind of things and then i would say have discussions with your with your your faculty mentor um, um, about what you want to try and do. So for my students in a DMA path, um, I will ask the question right out of the gate. What do you want to do with your career? Because we're going to need to do different things as we go through this in order to um, to make sure that you have what you need on the other end to be successful in the job market. Now, and, and that doesn't mean they have to be exclusive. I'm I'm a perfect example of of not having one path over the other on my way out the door. My my original intent was, you know, I'm going to play principal bassoon in a major orchestra, and that's that. And then then this job uh, opened up, and and now I think, wow, I wouldn't have done anything else. This is this is the way to go. So having the discussion early on, and not necessarily limiting what you're going to try and do, but kind of focusing on that as a pathway forward so that we take care of those kind of things. That's really good insight, um, especially into kind of your pedagogy for uh, DMA students and aspiring academics. And I would love to delve uh, into your kind of pedagogical approach, perhaps more generally. And I wonder if you could give us a taste of your approach, but also of developing as a pedagogue and, you know, creating your own philosophy and kind of what you've learned over the years with your experience and the position that you have. Um, so I wonder if we could begin with private lessons and then I've got a couple more detailed follow-ups. Great. Yeah. All of my lessons include fundamentals. I mean, I am a big fundamentals fan. So much of what we do is is dependent on on how well we handle those fundamentals of playing the instrument. So so you know if it's a young student, uh, maybe let's say first first semester undergraduate student, um, we're going to focus very heavily on tone production and posture and 
embouchure and all of those things. Um, so building some fundamentals into that regular lesson is going to be part of, of every week. Also in every week, there are going to be the etudes that, that we have come to know that are, that are the best tutors. I mean, we've got Weizenborn studies and Mildy studies and, uh, you name them, uh, the, the ones that, that we have kind of, um, grown to love because of what they do for us uh, on the bassoon. Um, and then, of course, solo repertoire uh, is, is all part of, of that private lesson. And, and they may shift, they, and they will shift. So, for instance, you know, again, that, that first semester freshman is going to be working heavily in, in fundamentals and, and um, etude work. Um, and then, you know, in the next semester, it'll be very something, something very similar. But we've got a jury to prepare for, and that requires now repertoire. And I love to start with the Vivaldi uh, concertos. Uh, I think they are excellent teaching tools. Uh, we can talk about um, uh, phrase structure. We can talk about note groupings, and we can talk about subphrases that lead to phrases and repetition and, and, and gaining energy and dynamic contrast and elegance. Uh, are all part of that very first jury because we're going to work with Vivaldi. Um, I think initially my lessons are not any different for um, a performance major, a music education major, a uh, Bachelor of Arts. Everybody needs to play the bassoon at the best possible level that they can. So um, I, I don't make a distinction necessarily in my lessons uh, in terms of what my expectation for students is dependent upon their degree program and and it's true that as you know music education students start to take off and have to do all of those you know um, music education requirements that take them a little bit away uh, from the bassoon then we need to change the format a little bit but the expectation to play the bassoon at the highest level no, never goes away um, so making sure that students also have uh, a good understanding of, of kind of the fundamentals, the basic repertoire that we need, that, that is part of, uh, you know, a good bassoon study. Um, but also introducing them to the new works that, that are not part of our typical canon. Um, and I've had some terrific students bring in uh, new works, works from composers of color uh, that are now part of my regular teaching routine. Um, uh, and it's really, it's really been really fun to to add those to it. So, in that undergraduate world, you know, we've got those typical typical uh, solo uh, pieces that we've got to do. But then adding these new ones to it has has really been terrific. And the students enjoy it. They know what's what's current. They know what's what's out there and what they'd like to play. Um, I think also providing students with an opportunity to say, "Hey, I'd love to do this piece on a recital." Okay, great. I am sure there's a way we can do that. Now, I may want Mozart Passoon Concerto on a senior recital, but outside of that, what do you want to bring to the recital? Or it could be, I mean, it could be whatever piece we've decided. Um, you know, so once we get into the masters, then uh, the lessons really, we have so little time. Uh, it's a, it's a two-year program. And to be competitive, either for continuing into a DMA program, or if you're going to move into the audition um, world, 
you have to be at the top of your game, both technically and musically. And that's the big press for me in, in um, a master's degree. The, I mean, we will deal with excerpts, of course, as part of, of your regular undergraduate study. I mean, that, that's the, the name of our game. But, but once we get into the master's, it is much more about making sure that you have all the tools available to you so that when you strike out in, 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 in your next adventure, that you're well prepared. Um, DMA uh, lessons, there, now it starts to change a little bit um, because the, the, the paths might be a little bit different. Um, I, I love working with my DMA students because I'm learning something all the time. So we're, we're covering repertoire that I'm expecting they're going to have to teach. So if they haven't covered certain etudes, or they haven't covered some of the benchmark um, recital pieces that we have. We've got to get you, get that under under the fingers and, and into the repertoire so that they're well prepared when they go out to teach. Um, again, excerpt study uh, and and preparation for auditions is part of you know if that's the path you're choosing, um, and then um, preparing students uh, also for for interviews now that include a recital um, that it that a large portion and and like like I said earlier we can talk a little bit about this um, later but the interview process is dramatically different than the audition process yeah. and and when you come to do a recital in front of of the committee and all the students and faculty who may be attending that recital it's a different presentation style than an audition and making sure that that you're able to do both of those things is is really important. I'm a big practicing fan too. I have a giant sign in my my practice room that that says more slow practice. But but I have my students. Uh, they they get to hear me talk about this every year. I do the the a powerful practicing presentation, which is the four T's of powerful practicing, and it it is all based on this quote from Aline Morris that says power comes to those who know and know that they know. And I break that down into two different aspects of, of your preparation. I mean, power comes to those who know and making sure that you leave no stone unturned in your preparation, everything from finger motion and quality of articulation, intonation and time, rhythm, pitch, all and beautiful tone, all those things. And then when you come to perform on stage, the power comes because you know that you know. You're confident because you've left no stone unturned. You can tell yourself, nobody is better prepared to play this concerto tonight than I am because I've worked to, to get that end result. So that that is a lot of the push in my lessons. Quality practicing. I love it. Uh same slash similar question, but about your um, pedagogy as it pertains to studio class and group learning. Okay, yeah. Um, studio class, um, I have to say, I have a terrific group of, of students in my studio class right now. They are terrific human beings and they're wonderful performers and, and uh, bassoonists and, and future educators. and. Uh, uh, but our st studio class for me is, is an opportunity for all of us to get together 
and and talk and kind of be bassoon gearheads for a little while, but not just about what buttons to push, where to scrape on a reed, things like that. We come together really as a as a community, and there there are performances that are required for for everyone in that class. And it, it may be an etude that you're working on for that upcoming week. It may be that you've got a recital coming up uh, and you're going to play some of that repertoire. It could be chamber music. Uh, you're working chamber music with, with colleagues and it's a woodwind quintet. We come into studio class and, and they perform there. Um, but in addition to performance, we, we listen to recordings. We'll talk about excerpt study and how to properly put excerpts together with score study and recordings and different uh, you know, uh, recordings to compare. There are opportunities for for professional development in our in my studio class. We talk about CV writing and resume writing and cover letter writing, professional expectations. We talk about the audition process and actually, you know, walk through what is going to happen when you go on stage and and you're walking on the carpet to the empty stand behind the screen and what your expectations should be there we do we do bassoon maintenance we do um uh, open topics my um my graduate students at some point in their career are expected to learn how to do a master class um and so that needs to be part of those folk those graduate students who are maybe in their last year um need to actually do a master class in a formal setting like a studio class to learn how to do a master class. We've all attended master classes, but it's a lot different when you're up there and you're the one that's supposed to impart the wisdom. Um, so we cover a lot of, of material in, in studio class, everything from playing the bassoon to professional development to even entrepreneurship and private lessons and uh, you know how to, to negotiate those things. Okay, my last related question in this series, same similar question, um, but about read making pedagogy and maybe even some of your own read making habits, tips and tricks sprinkled in if you would. Yeah, yeah, read making. It is, it's a complicated thing. We could, we could take every lesson and talk about reads, right? I mean, we, we all know that, that, um, uh, you know, we, there's a certain, it is, is a cross we bear. We've got to be great read makers. Otherwise there's nothing that we're going to be able to do with the instrument. Um, it's our voice. It is, it is what we use to generate the, the sound that we're, we're trying to make. So, um, I, uh, grew up with one, you know, with, with a, you know, typical German, read style, you know, uh, and, and scrape and move through a, a number of different um, uh, uh, read making processes until I got to Mr. Garfield and, and really settled on that one. So I, I am able to to talk with students who, who bring in different uh, read styles, especially with master students and master students and, and doctoral students. I'm happy to show them what I do with my reads and and um, if they want to employ those, uh, terrific. But but they've made their way at this point. They know what they want to sound like. And, and as long as, for me, the read is responsive 
and it plays in tune and it makes an elegant sound and it does what you need to do, I'm okay with that. It doesn't have to be my particular read style, but if it doesn't do those things, then I'm going to, I'm going to call you on it. (laughs) Um, So, so I think with, with pedagogy, you've got to start with the simple, you know, the aspects of, of, uh, this is what profiling, this is what shaping is. There, there should be ob- opportunities to demo um, those things, wa- have students watch me do those, uh, those things. Um, I do task my graduate students with first semester readmaking class. And my, my undergraduate freshmen are all required to participate in that. And, and so that's a good opportunity for them to, to start to build those skills. Um, and then at a certain point, I'll, I'll ask, let me see your read. And that always, that always instills a little anxiety, I think. <laughs> and and it's, it's funny because I'll, I'll hold the read up to the light and, and you can see on their face, they're like, oh, oh, oh okay, I see it right away. It's, it's interesting, right? You could see it right away. Oh, I thought I'd sell that. But, but I think uh, in terms of the pedagogy, there's so much that has to be learned with, with your ability to scrape. So having good tools, the ability to use those tools, practicing scraping on old reads so that you're not dealing with the read you think is going to be the most, this is going to be the best read I've ever made, and you tear the corner. Uh, uh, practicing, you know, if you tear the corner, fine, read's done, cut the end and put another tip on, cut the end, put another tip on. So just practicing the simple scraping motions that you need so that you can control the knife. Um, learning the different techniques, sandpaper, files, knives, whatever you need to be able to do to get the end result is fine with me as long as you can get that end result. So we talk about all those different uh, ways of going about it. I was a big fan of the Skinner book. Uh, I, I had, you know, uh, when I was a student, there were there were some of my colleagues who had, had gone out and, and done the, the class with with Lou Skinner and 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 I thought, wow, this this was so exciting. So I was very happy when when the book finally came out because I do uh, in my tube construction and my blank construction, I do use some of Skinner's uh, techniques, especially for scoring and 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 beveling and uh, that and the, and that has morphed into what is currently my read, which is you know a Garfield read. The Garfield read, I'll be honest, it's it's a challenging scrape. Uh, it requires real good skill with with the knife um it and and you know it is a matter of being a sculptor an artist at that point so that the tube construction is like being a great craftsman in terms of cabinetry making you know you've got to build to exact tolerances you've got to have dimensions that are the same otherwise you're going to have all kinds of variables when you go to actually make that read but then once you've cut the tip now you're a great artist, you're Michelangelo, or you know, you've got to put an artistic scrape on that read, which requires very good muscle memory and 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 small and large muscle coordination. Um, and then I would say, in addition to that, is learning to learning to scrape in the right place. And so I. I require all of my students to keep a read log, at least for a portion of what they're doing. And when I was a student, I had one all the time. Uh, and it may have been over the top. I mean, I, I show my read log to some of my students now and they kind of roll their eyes because I had 
every measurement, how long the blade was, where I got the cane, what the temperature was, what day I profiled it, you know, uh, whether it was cloudy or sunny, all of those things. And then the silhouette and all my measurements and and then kind of the second part of that would be all of the adjustments I made on that read to be able to get it to the point where it is. And sometimes that meant that scrape was an oops, that was a disaster. But I would write it down so that the next time I was like, I think I'm going to scrape here. But wait a minute, that was a disaster last time. Don't do that. But then the other side of that is that when you do get a read that you really love, that is now your A read, you've got documentation and you can try and make another one because you knew to scrape here, you knew to scrape here, you paged through your other ones and said, whoops, don't, don't scrape there. But the last time I had this issue, I was able to scrape here is now your A read. That's the way you're going to make them. And then if you continue that process, you're going to end up with an even better read, which is now your A read and all those other reads are now B reads and you keep building in that way. I also think that that having reads in all steps along the way is important. I mean, a read a day is what what I was doing in school. And I'm not suggesting that I was making 30 reads or 31 reads a month in that in that sense. But but, you know, on a typical week, five reads on the on the rack um, in all kinds of different places. So I would do basically all of the processes in a read in every given day, but just in different forms on each blank. So, you know, one day might be, you know, take a, a read right out of the water, shape, profile, turn it into a blank, put it on a rack. The, the one I had done before now needs to have wires and string, wax, good, let it sit. Uh, next day, cut the tip, put my first scrape on so that, but each day I'm, I'm building along with a brand new read on the rack each time. And each one now moves further through the process until they get to the box or the garbage can. Um, and um, I have a large, I shouldn't say large box, but it's a reasonable size box of blanks that are just sitting ready to go. And, um, you know, having them, uh, I was always, uh, when I was in school, I was always scraping rapidly and, and trying to play on reads immediately. And then I, found that I had left a couple blanks sitting around for a few months and and they turned out to be great reads. And then all of a sudden I was convinced that they have to rest a little while. So making sure you've got things that are resting in place uh, before you need to throw them in the box is a good is a good thing. I would say also be patient when you're scraping. Uh, in addition to knowing where you're trying to scrape and identifying that spot either through your silhouette or measurements, uh, your dial indicator or whatever. When you scrape, be thoughtful about what you're actually trying to do with that scrape. Don't scrape quickly. Um, and a lot of, we, we as, as students sometimes see our teachers scrape rapidly because they're so used to it. They know where they need to take out cane. They know where they need to leave cane. But as a student, you might not. And so if you scrape as rapidly as I scrape, might be a disaster. So be patient, be thoughtful. Uh, don't try and, and scrape further than you need. You know, it, it's the old adage, you can't put cane back on, but you can scrape and test and go, eh, not quite enough, scrape again. Um, and, and be tolerant with yourself. Um, you know, sometimes corner tears off, or sometimes it's just a bad piece of cane. Um, and 
it's okay to to say you know this one's just not going to make it on to the next um i do scrape i mean i try and make make reads out of a lot of cane i mean i i don't unnecessarily throw pieces of cane out i i will try and turn anything that is a reasonable piece of cane into a read um and i think that helps because you know, there, there may be a piece that you thought wasn't going to be spectacular, and it turns out that given the weather conditions or where you are or what altitude you are, that's a winner. Uh, so don't be too critical early on. Real quick before we move on, for our listeners who are unfamiliar, could you um, describe a Garfield-styled read? Hmm. A Garfield-style read is um, it's a very responsive read. Um, it's, it's a thin I mean, compared to a lot of reads, it's, it's a much lighter uh, read than uh, what's typically out there. Um, it has um, uh, strength in the, in the spine and the rails so that you can um, remove cane from places that, that uh, you don't need it uh, for support and, that, and, and helps it to be more responsive. Um, it's a smaller read because there's more cane, simply more cane out of out of the read, um, and probably the most identifiable aspect of of a Garfield read is that window in the back, and um, it, that window has you know allows the the uh, read to to settle down into the lows better. Um, it gives you a little bit more depth of sound. It's also easier on on the embouchure uh, that you're not having to control um, a read. Um, and Mr. Garfield was was big on on again an elegant sound. Uh, he spent most of I mean all of his career in the Academy of Music, where every little tiny noise that was made on stage was heard out in the hall. So he had to have a beautiful, elegant, refined sound right there on stage and also the the sound that was being transmitted out to the audience at at the back of the hall here had to hear that elegant sound so he talked a lot about the reed's ability to focus and building focus into your sound um and the garfield reed does allow for that the tube is is very round it's a round sound into the round vocal as as soon as it as soon as it passes uh where the blades are um it's it reminds me very much of driving a sports car or driving um, a big truck. And with a big truck, a big read, you have, you know, there's a, it's, it's stable. It is not going to move too easily. Um, but there's lots of play in the steering wheel. And when, and when you want to make a change, you've got to really be active. Um, and I played reads like that for a long time. And so really having that, that um, ability to drive a, a Mack truck um, uh, is important. But when you use the Garfield read, it's much more like driving a sports car. It's, it's highly nuanced. And the pros to that are you can control so many things. Um, you, you have greater control of, of, of pitches um, and, and it's easier to play. You can get behind the read and it's going to take uh, what what you're willing to put into it, but it's a double-edged sword. Um, you know, one tiny little move in the wrong direction, and it's going to react just like it did when you wanted it to do that that special thing, and it, it may hang you out to dry. So, so you know, 
being able to control that uh, is is important. But but I think um, just that yeah, the idea of having open channels that that you know famous spine um, and window combination uh, is is what really makes that read uh, something different. And and what I find to be very special. I play you know, a 7,000 series uh, heckle and that read works very well on there. I know that that's not likely going to be the read for, for some of the bigger instruments, uh, you know, the thick walled instruments. It's, it's, but, but there are, I have found there are adapt adaptations we can make to the Garfield read that do work with, with uh, some of the newer instruments and the, the heavy walled instruments. You know, leaving a little bit more in the back, giving some more substance to it, and and we get the flexibility and and the the highly nuanced sound of the Garfield reed with some of the the big instrument requirements. Is that? <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's the in depth, in the trenches, nerdy stuff our listeners love. <laughs> right. yeah, well, yeah, if it's too much, you can clip. <laughs> <laughs> Would you share with us a favorite memory from a past performance? Yeah, I could. Um, I last it was two weeks ago, I think. And, and the reason I would consider this my favorite memory is because it's so recent. Um, we, I was playing in uh, Lansing Symphony and I finally got to do Shostakovich 9. Um, and, you know, we practiced this for years and years and you know, you have to be in the right place long enough for the repertoire to come around, you know, uh, and, and so finally got my, my opportunity to, to do Shostakovich 9. And um, it was just really, um, a, uh, what's the right way to say this? I, I want to say that it was really life altering, but it wasn't. It, it was just a wonderful experience of playing the bassoon and, and of of course, we've spent so long thinking about how we're going to play that, because that particular moment in Shostakovich Symphony is just poetry. We're we're telling this story, and um, it was a moment that that I, I you know the orchestra fades away. It's just the strings at that after all that brass has come in, and and the audience is waiting to to hear what's coming, and you're the one that's going to give them that moment. That was really exciting. And it, uh, I mean, it was, I think it went well. <laughs> I, I think it really did. But, but um, being able to finally deliver that story that you've been trying to perfect for so long was really an awesome experience. Uh, and to have it go the way you planned, just, just like I was talking about before, all that practice and all that preparation to make sure that you have what you need in that moment and that your message is clear. You've got a great read and you've got a, a you know, everything feels good and, and you're, you're able to concentrate on what you're going to deliver at that moment. Um, that was just a really special moment for me. Um, Do you have any, embarrassing or funny maybe memorable for a different way uh stories that you can tell us <laughs> hmm. i don't i don't know if i've ever had anything really embarrassing happen on stage um uh well i mean there was one time where i was um 
try, you know, in, in um, Tchaikovsky 6, we have this, that last set of eighth notes down to the, the after the clarinet plays and a very written pianism, miss and miss and miss and miss and And so what I was doing is I was trying to experiment with how softly that could be played. And so I had made this little contraption that I, that I, I put on the long joint of my bassoon. So I took the bell off and I had this little cap that had some felt in the top. And I put that over the, the top of the bassoon. Cause you know, when you take the bell off, the bassoon is much, much softer. You put this cap on and it's, it comes really super soft, blocked a couple of keys, you know, in practice of that. And so my colleagues were having a very fun time with the fact that that, that instrument looked so goofy because it was shortened and it had a cap on the top and I had all kinds <laughs> of gizmos in there. And, but, you know. Did you perform with it like that without the bell yeah. or did you remove yeah. the bell sure. partway through that movement? Yeah, you've got a little bit of time right before that. You know, you listen to the clarinet player do his thing who's going to go very soft. And you're like, oh, okay, here it comes. You do that. You get yourself set up and then do, do, do. Did it work? Yeah, yeah, it worked really well. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that clarinet player never saw it coming. He was, yeah, I thought I was going to hang you out to dry, but I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah they paint us into impossible corners all the time. So, right. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So, we love to close with this question uh, What's your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Yeah. Wow. Um, I would say that in your preparation, in your undergraduate uh, preparation, start thinking about what your career is, is going to look like. Um, a, lot of, a lot of times we spend those moments in practice rooms thinking about other things. Oh, I, I, I have to do long tones for 20 more minutes. This is just going to be miserable. Instead of what is this going to do for me in the end? And that applies to applied lessons, it applies to ensembles, it applies to music theory, musicology, uh, all of those um, courses that you're going to work on as you, as you move through your career. They are going to become important if you intend to teach. I use theory in my lessons, I use history in my lessons, as I'm sure you both do. Um, and um, so, even though those skills at one point, you know, you think, oh, I'm never going to have to deal with, with that part of music history again, you'd be surprised how, how often those kind of things will come up. Um, seek out any and all opportunities. Um, uh, be ready for them. You know, uh, I, I'm not a, a big fan of just jumping into any audition just because it's, it's there. Be prepared and be ready so that when an opportunity like that does come around, you're, you're able to, to go there and represent yourself well. I would also say, don't, don't uh, pigeonhole yourself. Don't, uh, I mean, my career is the perfect example of that. You know, going through the whole thing thinking, all I want to do is play in a, in a major symphony orchestra, which is a great, I mean, that was a great experience and I loved doing that. But when this opportunity came around, it was a matter of being able to say, yeah, yeah, I, I think I'd be interested in doing that. I, I do have the skills. I, I do want to try and, and branch out in that direction. So when an opportunity comes around that, that you think you, you may be interested in, even if it's not what you had originally planned, 
jump in, jump in with both feet and try and do the best you can with, with it. If I, if I could go back and tell myself what I know now, I'd be, I'd be the bomb. You know, I was, <laughs> I, it was just, you know, if I, if I go back and say, okay, Michael, you need to sit down in the practice room and do your long tones and practice efficiently and, you know, take these experiences uh, really uh, to heart. Um, I think I'd, you know, be a different place. Also creating time. Uh, we work, uh, you know, my teacher used to always say the work is never all Mr. Mr. Gobrecht used to use Pennsylvania Dutch. He would say the work is never all. Uh, meaning the work was never all done. Uh, my students say the grind is real. I think that's that's what the, the, <laughs> the current terminology is, right? Uh, and uh, and so it is. And and you're right. The work is is never all done. But take some time to explore those other interests you may have. Um, it's revitalizing to take a little bit of time out. Uh, I I love photography. I love riding the bike. So making sure that I have time in at least at some point to do one of those things. And it may not be every day. It's not likely going to be every day. Um, but, but find some time to do those things. I, you know, hike in the mountains or, or whatever your, or ski or whatever your, your passions may be. Take some time for that because it becomes much more revitalizing for you when you come back to your studies. Michael. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us on Double Read Dish. We so appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for the opportunity to work with you. And and uh, I'm looking forward to all of the other episodes that are about to come up. We hope you found that interview inspiring and invigorating and just uh, delightful. How could you not? Uh, please go follow us on social media so we can connect with you. You can make sure to uh, submit your ideal recital programs for the next dish and rate and review on iTunes. Galit, who's coming up next time on the pod? We had so much fun talking with Kemp Jernigan, senior artist teacher at the Hart School of Music in Hartford, Connecticut. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. So make reads. <laughs>